Welcome back to the Good Art Podcast. This is Alex Mitchell. In today's episode, we are talking with Freya Dean, an artist who is living and working out of Tokyo. I want to apologize for the first half of this podcast. I was decidedly low energy. I just finished a three-week project in Tokyo and uh, had a really hectic day. So um, I wasn't on point, but luckily Freya was on point, so she managed to hold the show together pretty well on her own. So thank you, Freya. If you want to follow her on Instagram, you can find her at at F-R-E-J-Y-A-D-E-A-N. And of course, as always, you can follow me at a.h.mitchell. Okay, well, um, I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for tuning in again, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Modesty is not my speciality. You see ourselves as fancy, sophisticated. Yeah, because everything I want to do is yeah. but I just finished eating a hamburger. The picture is worth more than a thousand words. Make good so uh, welcome to the good art podcast i'm here with freya dean um you can follow her on instagram at f-r-e-y-j-a-d-e-a-n so uh freya you're an artist in tokyo yep and i haven't done any research like we were saying just a minute ago and i haven't um made any i haven't planned any questions either which is kind of a theme there's two themes to this podcast lack of planning and poor audio quality (laughs) so you know i think we've nailed it (laughs) I've planned. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, good. So, um, yeah, so we're sitting in your studio, which is um, in a complex called Courtyard, Courtyard Tokyo. And um, it's a pretty cool little studio. What's your daily life in Tokyo like? Um, so I'm here 9 to 5. Well, not 9 to 5. Everyone 30 to 7.30, Monday mm. to Friday, except like everyone else in Japan, that's not what it is. It's mm. much more. Um, but it's my studio and classroom. So what I do at Courtyard is I have an English and art class and around my classes, I paint and design and do things for shows and my own work. How would you describe your work? Um, someone asked me the other day and, uh, and I came up with a really, uh, sort of self-indulgent, overblown phrase, but it's just what popped into my head. Um, and it, what was it? Gothic biological maximalism. Makes sense. Yeah. I don't know where the gothic comes from, though. Maybe um, it's because it looks like stained glass windows. I mean, I was thinking gothic more in terms of, like, the sort of artistic and architectural movement, which is mm. sort of very detailed and, um, yeah, like the church is sort of symmetrical mm. and overblown yeah. and a bit indulgent. But, you know, that was for God, <laughs> so it was okay. <laughs> um, mine is just for me. Um, but then, yeah, and I was going to put that as my sort of Instagram text bit and I talked to my mum about it and she was like no you sound like a tosser so <laughs> <laughs> I chose a Calvin and Hobbes quote instead <laughs> but that is probably how I could because I think that kind of encompasses the three things which is gothic in the sort of intricate work mm-hmm. um, and maybe some sort of darker elements that tie into the biological which is my background training in scientific illustration so mm-hmm. everything's plants and animals and maximalism is just full of it. Yeah. Yes. I, I don't like to leave a sort of square inch of space. Not into negative space. Mm, I, well, no, I'm not very good at it, apart from mm. anything else. I shouldn't say that. Uh, it's intentional. Yeah. yeah. That's funny that you're in Japan. The masters of negative That's space. That's true, but also maximalism and that, what my old teacher used to call uh, um, super doodling. There are very intricate, intensive hmm. drawings of things. That's why I came here really, was because I wanted the competition of people who work like that. Yeah. How long have you been here for? Three years. Only three. You're quite well established for three years. 
I was very lucky very early on meeting the owner here and he and everyone here actually has just been really really supportive of my work and kind of allowed me the space and the time. Giving me this little cubby house to They've this given me, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, I managed to pack it so full that if they ever try and move me it's going to be <laughs> worse for them than it would be for me. <laughs> So, yeah, they've been great. I, I think that's mostly how I've managed it. So what made you want to come here? Just the challenge? Was it something more than that, for sure? Um, well, it was, it was lots of different things. Um, uh, basically, I guess, what it came down to, and this is what so many people say about so many things, where people are like, you know, why did you do that? Um, I just couldn't not anymore. Mm. I'd come here on holiday and I loved it and I had a really intense time because someone would pick me up every morning at 8am and drop me off at midnight and we'd pack in about 10 things during the day and I think for anyone if you have that intense period of time experiencing something so different it makes just a huge impact on you and uh, just the longer I kind of spent away the more I couldn't handle not being here. I would watch those sort of like Channel 4 eye dents where someone's walking through Shinjuku or whatever and just start crying. (laughs) (laughs) And I just had to come back. Um, So, yeah, I just got a working holiday visa and thought it would only be a year. And then, you know, it turned out... One thing happens. Yeah. No, no, people, the audience can't see this, but we're sitting on tiny little baby chairs. (laughs) (laughs) It's important to paint a picture of how... Sitting in this tiny room with tiny little baby chairs. <laughs> Someone asked me, they said you can tell a lot about a girl from which Disney princess she most identified with as a child. And I said, Alice from yeah. Alice in Wonderland. And I feel like... That's definitely what on, this feels like. tiny chairs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got it, I got there. And, but so, and you're still not sick of Japan? I'm um, talking to a lot of um, Westerners at the moment mm. who are just... Maybe it's the heat, I think. Yeah. Everyone I talk to, they're like, I'm so done with Japan. Yeah, I guess when you go anywhere, you start realising things that make you feel uncomfortable and that you sort of think, well, this would never happen where I'm from. Mm. Um, but then just as much you get, God, if I moved back, I would really miss having this or that um so the balance is tipped in japan's favor still and i haven't fallen out of love with it so emotionally and practically it's still so in this courtyard place there's a gallery and you're also running like a school and an english english lesson so it kind of merged into art so i do kids classes and i do um drink and draw life drawing where we'll get a model um i usually try and get people who dress really strangely or interestingly or performance artists or dancers and that's going to be in english Mm. as well so your i guess your your function is kind of using how to teach english yeah i mean i went to a steiner school and so sort of everything was done (laughs) by art (laughs) and interpretive dance (laughs) (laughs) eurythmy it's called eurythmy (laughs) oh so true yeah our maths lessons were were called form drawing Uh, uh, yeah so impractical (laughs) (laughs) well it didn't work for me but (laughs) not with maths Mm, no neither even the traditional approach can't work with me so yeah good luck are you sorry i know this is you interviewing Mm. me are you dyslexic or left-handed i'm left-handed and yeah and dyslexic 
It's Maybe. such an art thing, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Both of those I two. just think you're left with no other options. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that as well. That's art school, isn't it? <laughs> so you're working on a show at the moment. Yes. And what's it called? It's called Bloom. 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 So the theme of the show is there's three of us and the other two women are photographers. The, the things that we both paint a lot of are women and natural things so the idea was women and flowers um and we're kind of from that very simple point working our own pieces around that theme these are for the things i'll be selling the big moths are to make um stuff to sell because one of the things we were talking about before um is that it's almost impossible to sell canvases or paintings here you've really got to have like products so I'm making this sort of theatre, MDF theatre, to do like a Greek myth show mm. about Hades and Persephone. And that's just for entertainment and for the show. Mm. But the things I'll be selling are going to be objects rather than art. So because you also run a gallery here as well, as part of your, I guess, your sort of amorphous creative residency in this in this area, you curate shows. Uh, well, I don't run it, uh, okay. just in case my boss is listening. No. Uh, <laughs> Could you help with that? Yeah, so I, I put on some shows, do some myself here at Courtyard. I don't even know where I was going with that. <laughs> I'm going to eat another Oreo. It's been such a long day. I'm so tired. Yeah. Can you say it's been a long day and it's not just that you find me boring? I'm, no, I'm I never find you boring. <laughs> okay, good. We always have great conversations. <laughs> it's weird recording it now. We just forget that it's here okay. then. Yes, you were saying that you had some ideas to talk about. What would they be? So to I... my job form. <laughs> <laughs> but I have some prepared. Okay, so yeah. That's exactly, that was what I was working at all along. Uh, one of them I've forgotten. Um, maybe it will come back to me. But yeah, I was... Oh no, there were two things. There were two things I was thinking about recently, um, which I'd like to talk to you about yeah. and ask if you feel similarly. As a woman... Like, my monthly cycle massively affects what I'm better at doing at different times during the month. In terms of coming up with ideas and being creative, I'm much better, like, mid-cycle. Right. I don't know if that means anything to the boys listening. Doesn't mean anything to me either. Sort of between periods. Okay, yeah. Right bang in the middle. Um, Very creative, very energetic. I think I've got some kind of testosterone peak that happens there. And I'm just all in. Um, And then there are times like where if I have to have meetings or go to a gallery and sort of push my work or deal with any contract stuff, I'll do that PMT time when, you know, (laughs) it's like I'm taking them down. (laughs) And then once everything sort of kicks off, um, I get really mellow and relaxed. Like once all those hormones have started coming out of my body, I just, I can relax and I can start sitting into painting and getting on with whatever ideas I had during my energetic time. Mm-hmm. I can just, I have that peace of mind to sit down and sit into it. Um, and I guess what I was asking is like, obviously it won't be on a four week lunar cycle, but is there, do you have peaks and troughs and times? I do. Yeah. Well, because I have depression as well. So, and my depression's pretty cyclical. So Definitely. The things that I can work on um, are completely based on my neurochemistry, right. which is, I would say, it's almost monthly cyclical as well. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Do you think it helps 
like having it in any way creatively. Are there things depression? Can, yeah, I think so. Stop it? I think it depends how bad it is, really. If it's like a real, if it's, I've, I've been really lucky this year, so, and I've also gotten off my meds and everything's just been great. But, um, if it's just like, kind of like you're feeling shit and introspective, that's really helpful because you're just sort of taking your time and realizing, because what it is, is your, at least my take on it is that your brain is, there's something wrong. So you post-rationalize a reason for it. Mm-hmm. So you dig into everything in your life and you try and find what's wrong. So to give you an opportunity to try and, um, sort of pick your life apart so it makes you very introspective which mm. i think is really good for concept development mm. and then you know the, uh, the flip side of that is like if you have an like a manic episode well you know you can really pump out work yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so interesting that you say that because i was thinking about so you'll say you have this sort of energy burst as well at certain times and i was thinking weirdly that we have a similar thing and that i was thinking we both we both have energy but it's very different and I was trying to think of ways of sort of conceptualizing it. And I was thinking in terms of elements like fire, water, that doesn't work. Mm. But I was thinking it works in terms of music. Like I would say, if we're comparing our energies, your flight of the Valkyries <laughs> and I'm Farrelise. <laughs> but it's I can both live a with sort that. of swooping. I can both... live with that. I like that. Yeah. If, I was going to, if you're going to give me any any theme at all, that, it's yeah. it's that sort of swooping thing, yeah. which I think we both have. Yeah. But mine's a bit more twiddly sort of and the like... trebly bit, and yours is a bit more sort of you know down at the more. base. Kind yeah, of. yeah, that's nice. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So you do have that. Thing. I, I think everyone does. I think I don't know people who have depression or someone who you know women who have like a uh, like a hormonal cycle are probably more aware of it than most other people but i think we're all we're, i think we've all got like a, a monthly hormonal cycle of some sort neurochemically i think it would be crazy to sort of imagine that yeah nobody i mean it's very relevant here talking about it nobody is a machine but I think here everybody is encouraged to do the same thing every day with the mm. same amount of energy and the same frame of mind. I don't know how they do it. No, me neither. Yeah. Me neither. It's just like this kind of stoicism of just like just copying shit every day. Yes. Yeah. But even if you enjoy what you're doing, if you're doing if you're doing it hundred percent every day, that's mm. not sustainable. No. I mean, look at me in the last three weeks. It's I've I've been enjoying everything I'm doing, but I'm like if I wasn't getting on a plane the day after tomorrow, I, I would be very stressed out. I'm really glad that you said that because I, I had this moment like at the weekend where I've been working a lot, but I love what I do, but I was really thinking, when's this going to end? And then I was thinking, but what would I want to do if I had a break? Well, I'd be doing this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so like, there was no solution. <laughs> to I need a break from what I'm enjoying. It's yeah. yes. so terrifying. Mm, but a terrible thing to complain about. It is. <laughs> there are people who have way worse. But yeah, no, it's a terrifying thought that you can become like happy with your life. <laughs> when you think about it like that, that it, when you become happy, then there's no, there's nowhere else to go. Mm. So it's, you may as well be dead. It's <laughs> a very terrifying thought. Do you have titles for your podcast? Um, this one, no, no, but I'll, I'll come up with something. But the name of the podcast is a good art podcast um and the original um, mission was to talk to people about their art practices mm. and try and find out what goes into making good art mm. in terms of their practice and also what makes good art as in what is what is how would you define good art 
But I abandoned that like two two episodes in. Oh, good. Because <laughs> it's quite a lot of work. It's hard enough to create regular content um, without having it being challenging. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's quite a... Although, I, actually, I would say that I do have something to say about this, because this mm. was the other thing I yeah. was talking about. Um, when I'm working, I listen to, not in the design phase, but in the painting phase, in the just physical bit, mm. I listen to audiobooks, yeah. um, and sometimes podcasts, but they're not quite engrossing enough. I went through a phase of listening to this podcast called um, All Killer, No Filler. It's amazing it's these two northern girls from england talking about serial killers um, oh cool and they're hilarious yeah <laughs> despite the content <laughs> um but it's utterly compelling as well but the problem that i had and i don't know if this is because i'm particularly sensitive or because i was listening to it too much on the days where i was listening to it i would leave work feeling very depressed mm. and kind of freaked out and everything was colored quite darkly um and i've been reading this book it's called confessions by a japanese writer's name i can't remember but it's a, it's about a murder it's a sort of murder mystery kind of thing and again it sort of colored my life with this sort of gray <laughs> I'm, I'm exactly the same when, when i read really? a book i take on my internal monologue essentially becomes the internal monologue of the main oh, character in the horrifying. book. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so you've got to be really careful what you read. Yes. And um, yes, you yeah. really do. And I hadn't realised that I was so affected by this. And then what it made me think was, we are so responsible as sort of um, people who create things for the effect that we have because it's making a reality for anyone who comes into contact with it. Yep. You have this sort of sphere of psychological impact, whether it's like on social media or in a gallery or in a book. And it really hit me when I was trying to write a story because I've had this idea for a film and a story. And it was the first time I've ever tried to write anything kind of creative writing wise, really, for a long time anyway. And the more I wrote it, the more it became real. And I thought, I don't know if I can carry on with this because it's quite a dark. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to make this a reality for myself and for whoever comes into contact with these. It's not fake. It's not a story. No. That person is going to be real. And what happens to them is going to really happen to them for anyone who knows about it. And it's such a huge responsibility. And, and I thought, in terms of what we were talking about with people who don't do what they love every day, what we do is make a space in the world that makes it worth being alive. People do their nine to five so they can experience the, the art and the culture outside of that. And if what we give them drives them down further, I mm. think we're not doing... I think making good art is a responsibility as well as just a nice... It serves, <laughs> it serves a function. Yes. It does. And I think a lot of people... I think I didn't realise how much of an impact you have on people until I started noticing better the effects that certain things have on me. And it made, yeah, it just made me think, I'm probably not going to be one of those uh, sort of, oh God, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, one of those artists who uses sort of dead bodies or animal carcasses or, you know, no. I, 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 I couldn't be responsible for re-representing things like that. Hmm. I have to do light <laughs> yeah not dark for me because so, yeah, you, that's me. that's how you see the function of art in society is is i don't know though because then mm. you can't say 
we should not have artists who do do that. Uh, there has to be a place for everything and everybody's sort yeah. of voice. I'm just saying. I think it's I easy because we get artists can be so self absorbed that we almost we're almost immune to other people's art the way that a non artist is. You know, we yes. kind of, we kind of yeah. we're hypercritical. We see ourselves doing it. We, we see it from a different perspective, from someone who's not making art and just enjoying it. We forget that it has an emotional effect. There's a million other things that cross our mind when we walk into a gallery other than, or we open an art book or we something like that. I'm sure authors feel the same way. They can't read a book without going, oh, so he's, you know, this is how he's going to propel the narrative or some shit. They, the movie Magic is lost for us. Maybe we forget the impact that we have because we don't feel it as much as someone who's just enjoying art does. But I wonder as well, I mean, this might just be because I'm from England um, and I think it's particularly a thing there. I think a lot of art that's made isn't necessarily made to make emotional impact. Mm. I think a lot of it is very kind of um, political and critical and gimmicky and clever. And commercial. And commercial, which I, you know, I don't say there isn't a place for, but it doesn't move me emotionally particularly. There, I think... To find artwork that moves me emotionally, that I find incredible and really sort of improves my life from having experienced it, is rare, not just because I'm an artist, but because I think not enough artists have the intention to do that. This is a big conversation to have because it's sort of, we have to kind of roll all the way back and define what art is to begin with. I, I sometimes think that trying to define art is like, it's an impossible task because it's almost an absurd task. Mm. It's like saying, um, like trying to define um, a block of clay by all of the things that you could carve into it. Art is more like a, a means by which to communicate rather than what it actually communicates. You know, someone could be like, oh, you know, art to me is this and art to me. It's so subjective mm. that what we really need to understand is that it's it's just a medium for something mm. and that is completely up to it's almost like you know like what is what is speech you know because speech is exactly the same as art it's like you could say oh can speech can be used to um communicate ideas or it can be used to um it can be used to tell people what to do or it can be start used wars. It, it can use start <laughs> it's like it's got all of these things but you can't really define speech by any one of them and and art is exactly the same it's just a form of communication. So some artists can have some artists can be commercial artists and, and they can be they can wake up every morning and read a market and then create artwork based on what their galleries want and, and make cash. And other artists can be like, look, you know, I feel something very deeply and I'm gonna do my best to express it because it's a, an unintellectual concept. And the only way I can properly express what I'm feeling is through an image or an installation or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a, such a, it's a, you cannot define art. No, no. I think it's weird what you're saying because it makes me think of something that um, before anyone judges me too mm. harshly, uh, <laughs> I want to explain. <laughs> um, sometimes when I'm really stressed out, I do tarot. And I don't do it because I believe it's going to tell me my future. I do it because, um, and I use the Alistair Crowley version because it's really good. But... One of the things I think is whatever problems you're going through, however you're thinking about anything in life, laying down some images with some text that's just incredibly perceptive ideas about how life works. Um, it's like, have you ever had that experience where you're thinking about something, you're thinking about a problem, and you're watching TV and someone says a word or a phrase, mm. 
and it goes into your head at the same time and it suddenly makes you think about your problem completely differently oh yeah yeah that's what tarot does for me it does it's well it's, it's archetypal symbolism so it really lets you break down your life into the archetypes which is a super healthy way to look at the world mm. and also if you're stuck in a particular rut or funnel can subvert that completely mm. Um, and because I think we, we all have certain patterns of ways of addressing certain things. Yeah. So I think art should, well, for me, it often serves a similar purpose as tarot in that it's an experience that I have that sort of comes up against my life experience and can let me, allow me a little window into thinking or feeling differently about something. Yeah, I don't know that much about the tarot. I mean, I know about certain cards and, you know, I know about, like, Crowley's um, interpretation of it a bit, but I never, I never messed around with it. I just sort of, I understand it for, for like, because I'm really into um, comic artists like Grant Morrison and um, Alan Moore and all of these guys that kind of infuse occultism into their, into their narrative. Oh, so I'm aware yeah. of how that works, mm. but I've never really messed around with the tarot. It's really fun. Alan Moore's take on, on art is really good. I don't know if you've seen it. He's a good. Have you, you know him? He wrote. Um, he wrote like V for Vendetta and um, um, The Watchman and. Uh, okay. Um, he's just. I think he's just a cranky old man now. Um, he's, a, he's a cranky old communist. It's really disappointing. You. Just a cranky old communist. But um, there's some good. Uh, there's some good interviews with him where he talks about. Um, the role of the artist is kind of the shaman, how the shaman and the priest and the artist are, are this uh, connection between the sacred and, and the mundane. Mm. And we, we serve as this sort of uh, like the interpreter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're, we're an interpreter of, of the sacred mm. through symbolism. Mm. And I like that. Uh, I think that's really cool. And actually, um, a lot of the artists who do that kind of work, I don't know if you know the sort of theosophists and all of those, mm. kind of like Hilmar F. Clint, who did these sort of things. Yeah. Their paintings are some of the most beautiful things ever. So, yeah, yeah I think even if you've got the idea of representing the sacred, it does something to your work that people recognise as being iconic and um, transcendental, yeah. even if you don't understand exactly what it's about. Well, you know, it comes down to part of our biological, it's ingrained mm. biologically in mm. us. And so if you, as an artist, if you're working with symbols, you're really, you're tapping into a, like a biological pre-programmed set of devices that you can use to communicate, which is really useful. It is very useful, particularly if you want to make money. I did one piece <laughs> um, that was for, it was for the National Literacy Trust in England. There were like 50 artists chosen to illustrate the sort of public piece of uh, art, which was a bench in the shape of a book. And every artist got a, a, an author and mine was Ian Fleming. So I was doing James Bond. Um, and, you know, I wanted this thing to make money because it was for a children's charity. And I thought, what do people spend a lot of money on, particularly in England? Um, okay, people love the colour red and the Union Jack and sparkly things and skulls. So I just did that. And mine went for the most money. Other people were doing situations in the books, idiots, just put, yeah, just you like, know, the national flag and some sparkly things. And like, that's, there are a lot of artists who do very well just by thinking exactly like that. Yeah, not naming names or anything, but yeah. <laughs> it works. Yeah, some things just are in all of us and the minute, you know, it's so recognised recognizable or something and yeah yeah it can be made to make people spend but it can also be made to sort of trigger um realizations in people as well 
Yeah, which is really cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I think that's what the, a lot of the Catholic artists were, were working with those symbols, you know. Yeah, I guess so. I suppose Ooh. if there's anything religious whatsoever in what I do, it's definitely more on the kind of... I wonder if that's one of the reasons I came to Japan as well. I think there's something about sort of before Christianity hit the English coast and we had paganism and Japan's Shinto... I think there's something maybe particularly about people from an island that's very appealing about worshipping what's immediately around you. Um, if there aren't huge stretches of land, you've got, you know, the rock that you know and like. And, <laughs> and yeah. they all have a, a character and a spirit. And I think if there's anything whatsoever religious in what I do, it's more, you know, a natural side. Um, but I'm a Steiner girl, so there's probably going to be some anthroposophy and theosophy or whatever it was god, in there yeah, as well god, god knows what brainwashing they they, they stuck in your head at some i think point. they'd given up by the time <laughs> I, <laughs> I went i think it was um <laughs> they weren't too bothered by then but they originally like, they just let you finger paint <laughs> <laughs> for 12 years <laughs> we weren't even allowed spirograph it was the devil's work <laughs> It's true, I wasn't allowed to use a pen till I was 15. Yeah, so that's where mine stuff comes from, I guess. Do you have any questions for me? I like your questions more. We've got <laughs> one more conversation going when you're leading, when you're leading this. Um, so what was I thinking about recently? So I was thinking about, yeah, how... Um, so I guess when you're creating and coming up with stuff, um, do you have to be careful about your environment? Oh uh, yeah, my, my process well. is really involved. Well, actually, it starts with me just coming up with like really loose ideas of what I want to photograph, or like so. I've always I've got this huge checklist of stuff that I need to photograph at some point for my library. So it's that's the first step, and then there's uh, finding it in a museum or something and photographing it, and then then there's a really boring process that I can just listen to music with mm -hmm. because there's nothing creative about, which is exporting every single image and clipping it, clipping it, clipping it, so getting rid of all the backgrounds. Right, right, right. And you know, you can do that for thousands of images, it can really take a few days. It sucks, but it's fun. I mean, it's fun because I can just listen, tune out. It's monkey work, so it's mm. nice. Does it calm you down? Yeah, yeah. And then then there's the collage aspect of it where I'm, I'm just working in a digital space of all of those clipped images, just sort of moving them around, working out how they are. And then I re export those images and re clip the high ver res versions of them because I'm not going to work with the low res versions. Mm then print them out, cut them, glue them together. Physically? Yeah. So, and then, so there's like, at that point the creative's finished, you know? It's like kind of, I'm more like just a, I'm just printing really. Yeah. Printing, cutting and gluing. So each one of those steps has a different mindset really. How much would you say, so this is something I've thought about quite a lot, how much of the process would you say is creative and the idea part and what part is the physical um, doing it? That's it's half-half. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. I'm trying to get to the point now where I'm being more expressive during the making process to try and add, I'm trying to add elements in there that I can use as an expressive. So it's not just me mindlessly doing stuff, but also changing or sketching into it or using an eraser to get rid of certain prints and stuff to add a certain hands on feel to it. Mm. Um, so that's something I'm trying to work on because I feel like. It's like even though I'm remaking it by hand, there's no real difference between that and the, and just printing something digitally, except for the fact that I, I put all these extra steps in it to almost like just validate the fact that it's art, you know. So I'm trying to turn those steps into something that I can be more expressive with. 
Do you ever? Did you ever draw or paint? No, I'm. I have no hand-eye coordination. <laughs> <laughs> like I can't draw for shit. <laughs> the reason I ask yeah. is um, it's something my dad does sometimes a, a lot actually, and something I've done a few times is before you're doing the final piece. And I want to sort of circle back to collaging at the moment because I think that's really important for lots of people, particularly, yeah, for me as well. Um, but if you do, there's something about, you know, the, the calligraphic, very fast hand movement of a brush, mm. getting that energy um, and then putting the image of what you want on top of it. So if I, if I know I want to paint, let's say, a bird, if I do just a quick arm gesture with a brush, that really helps me get the form. Because if I just try and paint a bird, it's going to look dead. But if I get the movement and the form quickly, and then I paint it on top of it, somehow it can so somewhat maintain the energy of that quick yeah. movement. And my dad does the same, like he paints a lot of rocks and trees, and he'll do these sort of very fast calligraphic hand gestures, and then he'll paint into that. So that creates the outline, the yes, movement, the ex dynamism. Exactly. And then you go into it afterwards mm. with the detail. I think the key to that is, um, is discipline. You just have to, because anyone can can be like, yeah, <laughs> you know, but uh, you have to get so good at it that you're you can do but it in a way. Your quick gestures are, are controlled. Right. You know? I remember when I was a kid, I used to just sit at the piano, just <laughs> yeah, didn't incredibly expressive, <laughs> incredibly expressive, but nothing. It I mean, takes that's discipline. That's a lot of art, though, isn't yeah. it? That's. <laughs> I think that's lost in art. How do you feel about that? Like this, this the way that. Um, that art is kind of the rules of art have been broken by things like postmodernism and stuff like that. Do you do you feel like that that gets that takes away from expressiveness? Um, I guess I feel like so it was over a hundred years ago that mm. Duchamp did the urinal, and I feel like a lot of what's going on now is people kind of going, "Well, that there's a lot of money invested in that kind of thing now. I needn't bother." Mm. <laughs> Um, learning how to do art. <laughs> That's what it seems like. It's, it's And I think you would never get that with music. You would never get someone, whatever kind of music they want to do, whether it's, you know, John Cage or... Yeah, I was about to say John Cage. <laughs> whether it's John Cage or, um, I'm trying to think of, Alicia Keys or whatever. Um, you would never get someone taken at all seriously as a musician if... They didn't know how to play music. Even if they decided not, even if they decided to do, was it twenty minutes of silence or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, even if that's what they wanted to do, it's not credible unless they can do, unless they know the form. Yeah. Um, and the same with writing. You know, break whatever rules you want, but it's just going to be a load of garbage if you don't know how to structure a sentence, or, or even if you don't know very well, you have to know how to spell, you have to, you know, there's certain things, yeah. and I feel like art has been given a huge license, so to speak, in allowing people to just splurge all over the medium without, yeah. without really trying, I mean, I, I don't mind rules being broken, but it's so obvious well, when breaking the rules become the, the rules, mm. and then that's when you become you have a problem. Yeah, and I, I think what was really sad in a lot of ways for people of my age learning in London was that, you know, we had um, modernism, postmodernism, and the YBAs, and all of this really exciting stuff happening. And by the time it got to sort of kids my age trying to learn how to draw and paint, um, none of the tutors had been taught 
So even if we, you know, even if we wanted to do a ready-made or an unmade bed or whatever, um, we couldn't learn how to do anything else. So there's no choice in it. That's why I wanted to do scientific illustration was because I thought whatever I do, if I know how to draw and paint, it doesn't limit me not mm. being able to. Yeah. And, you and could, it's almost the only place you can get those skills now. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't really do it anymore. I mean, my course was the last in Europe um, when I started it because it's so expensive because mm. you, you need the tutoring time. Yeah. Um, so there are, I think, 12 of us in my year. But if you do a general illustration or fine art course, you can get 70 per tutor. <laughs> mm. So it's very expensive to run, so they stopped doing it. Um, and I think that's a real letdown for anyone who does art. Obviously, there are brilliant people who can teach themselves, and that's great. But I remember when I did my foundation, I don't know if you have that in Australia, it's like the year, you do a year of trying lots of different kind of art before mm. you specialise for your degree. And you can really tell the kids that work in a certain way because, I mean, it's before you could really say anyone had developed a particular style. We were all 18. There were people who did have a kind of style, but at that stage, style was so much more really avoiding doing what they were unable to. It came out of their weaknesses rather than their strengths. Um, And I thought that, that, you know, that was really encouraged as well, which I thought was not great. I thought, okay, encourage somebody if if they have a particular way of doing things, great. But as a teacher, give them the tools, give them the basics. Oh, I notice all of your faces are not smiling. Is that because you can't do teeth? Let's do it. Let's go, let's go over that a bit or, you know, I, I don't think there was anyone. So I did that BA and then MA at St. Martin's, but obviously like for my whole art career, loads of my friends were artists and so many people I knew didn't understand perspective um, and, you know, they couldn't paint um, water or a cloud. They couldn't do anything technical. Mm. So they were forced to do... Do relational aesthetics. Relational that's just like it's sort of sticking a garden gnome on a on a bit of dirt and writing a five page essay about it. Oh, right, I see. Yeah, yeah, there was lots of that, lots of that. Which yeah. again, if you've done everything else and you decide that's what you want to do, I haven't got no beef with that. I guess my issue comes in particularly with the education system, taking people's money and not giving them any choice in what yeah. in how they work. It's becoming rarer and rarer to find a university that will be able to teach anyone a technical skill nowadays. And they'll almost, they'll almost penalise you for having a technical skill. Oh, yeah, I got so much sugar. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know well, what I can say. We're not fancy. <laughs> we're not fancy. <laughs> um, I got so much shit for painting things that look like things. Yeah. <laughs> and I, even like, oh, God, I don't know if I should say it. He won't know. He won't yeah. listen. Um, uh, I had an interview for my master's at St. Martin's, Central St. Martin's, and the course had just started. It was called Art and Science. And I came there with my portfolio and I was showing them all the stuff from my scientific illustration and my medical illustration course, which I thought ideal. <laughs> and the tutor interviewing me said, um, yeah, okay, this is great, but if you want to join this course, you, you're going to have to kind of do, you, you're going to be willing to do some less representational stuff, right? And of course, it was an interview, so I said, yeah. <laughs> but I thought, you know, after that, I thought, 
it's it's not your job to tell me what I can and can't do. It's your job no. to teach me what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're there to facilitate my growth, yeah. not stunt whatever it might be. You know, if you want me, have me. If not, you know, mm. don't. But I just thought that was so representative of English art schools. Well, okay, that's great. You can draw and paint, but actually, yeah. that's not what we want. So, but we have an agenda. We need to know <laughs> yeah. that you're going to be following us. We have to know that the people who scout from here and the galleries that like the students that you know qualify and the collectors that go to those galleries are all gonna like you because it's the kind of work they've invested in for the last hundred years. So do you think that's it? That's it. That's actually a really good take on it. Why the universities are so adamant on on this stuff because they they're aware that people are scouting them and that those people who are scouting them have like commercial requirements well universities again i don't know about australia or other countries Mm. but in england they're functionally businesses now uh you don't get grants or bursaries or anything like that everyone pays to go everyone's customer universities have to get customers so to get those customers they have to have um kudos they have to they have to be somewhere their customers are going to want to go like any business and to be taken seriously, they've got to fit into the art market and they've got to produce artists that the art market will buy, which will increase their prestige. And art is so, uh, you know, it's what you call the third tier. Is it the third tier or the first tier? Oh, yeah. The big uh, investors. The big investors, third tier. Third tier. The big investors, um, because so much money has been invested in the last 50 or so years in a particular kind of work, that's what everybody is getting funneled into. Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. That's true. To me, that seems ludicrous because um, what you're saying is you're investing now in a style that won't be worth anything until the artist is established, which will take five to ten years at least. So they're investing in a style that is going to take five to ten years before it becomes commercially viable. Well. The style is already commercially viable before the artist applying the style mm. becomes commercially viable. It's like this huge blind investment in a style of art. Like even if you're an artist that doesn't even want to make creative work and you're just trying to sell, it seems like a it seems crazy. But it, I think you might be right. But it just seems ludicrous to invest so much time and energy into something that you're not going to see a commercial return on in for ten years, and even then you have no way of knowing if that's what the market's still going to want. Except it, has, it, does, that, it doesn't, doesn't seem to change. It doesn't really. seem to change. Not the higher up you go, the less it changes. Yeah. I mean, it's been the same 50-odd artists who've been selling the work, the top, you know, the most amount of artwork for the same, you know, for 50, 60 years. It's the same people, 70 years, the same people still. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and I think it's because people are terrified. I think it's it's not like any other product. Um, it's based on feeling and intuition, and nobody wants to be, you know, throwing that out there as something they're not good at. So they'll jump on the bandwagon, I think. And you see it at every level, you know, people buy art far, far too often based on other people's preferences. And I think that's something actually that I think should really be addressed in the world is we've got to teach artists how to do art. But we've got to teach people how to learn what they enjoy (laughs) i think too many people have absolutely zero confidence in their own taste and preferences that's really funny because i was interviewing someone yesterday who said the exact same thing really sorry (laughs) i mean he's from hong kong so it's two different reads from two different places but i think you might be right did he have any 
ideas for a way of no, <laughs> None of out. us have any ideas. <laughs> but at least we've, at least we've recognised the problem. We haven't yeah. got a solution for it yet. But I think it should start at school. I think the education system is just as bad. It, it makes these sort of, you know, it makes these people who are very good at following orders and have no confidence in their own opinions and mm. ideas. And it's why I'm really glad that I went to a Steiner school, actually, mm. um, because they were very up on the idea of every child has their aura, their being, their, you know, everyone is precious and everyone has particular things they like and do. So whether you like it or not, you kind of get mm. um, an identity. Um, and you can change it if you like um, or grow from it. But it means that you learn very early on that there is no right and wrong as, as far as your preferences are concerned. What you want to mm. do is up to you. Um, and I think if schools were more encouraging of children to make their own mark on paper or in life, in what they wear, in how they speak, in what they do, without sort of pandering and letting them kind of run riot, you know, mm. there has to be discipline, yeah. but, but just freedom of kind of discovering what they like, I think we'd have more adults who are more discerning and more courageous in their choices. So people might, it's hard for us to understand this because we're so immersed in it and it's something I really need to get my head around, but it's possible that people walk into a gallery absolutely petrified that they're going to make the wrong choice or that well, they're going to buy something that's going to that. make them look silly, mm. which is weird Yeah. because yeah. I mean, but it's the fact that it's hanging to begin with in theory means that someone thinks it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But then, you know, critics as well. Yeah. <laughs> they may disagree. Uh, in theory. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I just think that's that's outrageous because it's for them. Hmm. The reason it's there is for yeah. communicating something to them. And the fact that they feel alienated means um, the art world is letting people down. And it's obviously only pandering to the people who it already has. Yeah, because it's through. become so academic. And so insular and such a bubble. Mm. I remember when I was a kid, um, my inter my vision of what an exhibition was, was a bunch of people sipping martinis and wearing suits, you know, <laughs> I, and what art was, was like the art on that wall, you yeah. know, but meanwhile, I'd, I'd go home and, you know, like one of the first books I had was um, Flights of Icarus by your dad, which was like. You know, and that was, for me, that was art, you know, but, but at the same time in my perception of what art was, was, you know, people with like some blue square on a wall or something. Yeah. Going, oh, yes. People are still doing this. Yeah. Oh God, sorry. But, but <laughs> it's funny that you, that I'd be doing that, but, but also opening a comic book, mm. which has great art in it or playing a computer game, which people are only just starting to recognize as art. I think we've, we've really, I think the. I think art has become so insular and so protective of itself and so academic that it's isolated a lot of people. Mm. It's stopped being uh, something that anyone, anyone, anywhere can enjoy because they do, you know, they don't realize they're doing it, but when they watch TV or they watch a film, they are watching art. When they listen to music, in theory, mm. it's not crap music, is they're, they're listening, they're <laughs> listening so to they're art. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, I think the art world's really let people down in that respect. Mm -hmm. It's like it's. A, I had this theory for uh, for a while, which I don't know if it really holds water. But um, my theory was that um, part of the reason that art became so meta and self-referential mm. was because we had this explosion in media. We had film appearing, and 
and TV and eventually all this other stuff. And it, and it became like, um, that was so accessible, you know? Um, and I think the art world kind of realized that it, the, the, the gig was up, you know? <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, you know, like we used to be this place where you have to walk into a room because, you know, there was no moving pictures mm. and enjoy a, a still picture. And that was how we could communicate with people. And suddenly some maniacs come up with this, uh, magical lantern over here that can, that has, that gives all, all the riffraff, all the, so they had to become like, they had to like have this Quick false, get some rich people yeah, who spend loads of money yeah, on it and make it. Exactly. They <laughs> create like this again. false sort of, uh, uh, exclusivity. Yeah. So they started developing a dialogue, uh, insular dialogue uh, of like meta critique. And then that just evolved into this complete breakdown of rules, which was just another way of saying, you know, if, unless you've gone to the right college and you know, the right speak, you can't appreciate what we're talking about because you're going to think this is just a blue square, mm. but in reality, <laughs> and yeah, I feel like not, that not, they not. did that as a kind of protective mechanism. And that's why I find it, especially in Australia, I don't know if it's like that in the rest of the world, but if you didn't go to the, the Victorian college of the arts or, um, one of these art schools, you've got fuck all chance of getting a grant. It's just not going to happen for you. But, but, um, you know, you, you come from the VCA, the chances are someone on the grant committee is going to be one of your old teachers mm. and they look out for each other. Yeah. So it's like the art world is like, it's kind of repressing all of these people that didn't go through the, didn't go through the secret society and don't know the handshakes, yeah. you know? Um, like I said, I don't know if this theory holds a lot of water, but it's something I, I've been thinking about for a while because it's almost like, it's like a response to the market changing so drastically that they needed to become this little castle that they created for themselves. Perhaps that's what's happened. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a lot of things. I think what's ridiculous about it is that I think even vastly wealthy people who are the people they want to get in there and buy the artwork are massively intimidated. That's why you have people who are, you know, consultants and advisors mm. and all of that kind of middleman who who can do the art speak and yeah. <laughs> talk Don't to worry, normal this people. Is good. This is good. <laughs> Yeah. And um, someone who can take the blame if someone else likes it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such an Emperor's New Clothes sort of mm, yeah, kind it of is. thing. Um, yeah. And I think it's really tragic. I think it's like a lot of things, though. I think what we need to do is um, laugh at the naked Emperor. I think we need to sort of turn our backs and sort of buy each other stuff. Yeah. I think we need to say, uh, I want to buy art. Um, and design and music because it improves my quality of life and my mood and my happiness and everything and I like this um, mm. my friend's friend does these gorgeous paintings of gnomes or whatever mm. and <laughs> I gnomes. love them <laughs> I don't know <laughs> whatever it may yeah. be and just start I think just getting people buying for love and learning to love images and art because it would have happened. I mean, like, if you think about, ah, oh, there's this beautiful gallery um, in England. Um, God, the artist, something Watts, John Watts, probably. Um, and all those sort of pre-Raphaelites. I mean, they weren't making art <laughs> for any other reason than they just wanted to make these absolutely exquisite, gorgeous And they things. had a thing for redheads as and well. And they had a thing for redheads. <laughs> and so I came out of yeah. the <laughs> I got a thing for bugs. So I made bugs. <laughs> like... Whatever it is, it's gotta be. It's gotta be joyful True. for the love of it, and it's because yeah. And this... it feels like it feels like in the last hundred years that that sort of momentum's just completely stopped. Mm. You know, 
very cynical and yeah but it feels a little like i mean then you have like these outsider movements like street art and stuff like that that kind of brought it back up again but that's it's been um i mean street art's kind of dead now but and the stuff that's still around is just being kind of absorbed into the machine. You right. Know? What's the word? Institutionalized. It's been institutionalized. But is there, I mean, is, are we saying that we want deinstitutionalization of art? I, I want to, I've got very red recently. I mean, communist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't mean embarrassed. <laughs> um, I've got really kind of, well, not communist, socialist about all of these things. And I guess I. I think the minute you protect things and the minute you build walls between things, mm, you're not... <sighs> the way that I think about what I do is I love doing it, that's great, um, but I don't do it for... It's for other people, mm. and I think that's how anyone who creates things should think about it. I want to give something to other people and share an experience. For that to happen, you have to have people who don't feel like a gallery or an exhibition is people in suits um, mm. looking at blue squares on the wall. Um, so, but obviously, I don't know, do, do you need do you need much between the artist and the... Yeah, and I mean, maybe the institution is just there because there are a lot of people invested in it and it needs to protect itself. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I often wonder what would happen if someone people took very seriously in the art world, um, one of those sort of collector gallery people just said, do you know what? This is bullshit. Well, we, have, <laughs> we, we actually have a situation like that in Australia. There's a, there's a guy called David Walsh who started a gallery, a museum in Tasmania called Mona, and mm. he was a gambler. He just made all his money playing poker. Mm. And um, he just built this incredible museum. It's like under the, it's a bunker, it's underground, it's all of these... Uh, we should turn the aircon on a bit anyway. But um, it's just it's. But it, when he when he first opened, um, the established museums all looked down their their nose at him and treated him like he was some kind of you know idiotic outsider because he'd just he'd just find what he liked and just find a uh, great artist. But uh, he 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 curated it for himself and he curated it for people and it was an experience. People would go there and a lot of people would say you know you go to Muno, it's just like peasants go there or whatever. But um he created this experience that's like really dope that he curated him he'll mix uh, ancient history with uh, modern stuff and it's um, incredibly well designed the architecture is amazing for the first few years everyone looked down their nose at it and would be like oh but now what I'm noticing is that the National Gallery of Victoria um, just had a Biennale and um, a Triennale and they essentially they co completely copied his format right so they're 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 doing stuff with artists now that are, you know, much more event-based and much more um, experiential, and um, they're mixing different types of, of art together, and they're creating something that people actually get excited by and want to see, which is completely different to what they were doing before, which was just, you know, snobbery. So it's funny that as a result of him being one of those people, like a, a serious collector, and actually completely breaking the dynamic and doing his own thing, and then it just became, throughout Australia, everyone was just... Like, while the established curators looked down their nose and they were like, oh, this is shit, the audiences were flocking to it. This is what happens in everything. It's like the same with the fashion industry. You have those, um, what are they called, trend 
uh, scouts or whatever, and they go out and they forecasters. forecasters. They go out and they find something they like and they think is cool. Yeah. And then um, they give it to the magazines and they decide for the next two years what's going to be cool and fashionable. And then all of the fashion houses have to do it, otherwise they won't get any coverage. Mm. I think there are people who are really... And this comes back to the collaging thing. There are people... It's much easier to recognise something very good and aesthetically right than it is to come up with it out of the blue, which is why I collage before I paint. So Mm. I'll make a collage of something, I'll see what works and looks good, and then I'll draw it and then I'll paint it. And like this guy who had the gallery and like a lot of those trend forecasters and this kind of thing, some people are very, very good at coming up with these and they let their talents become fossilised by these places. Well, maybe they don't let them. They, they, they're ripped off. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what really happened to them. You know, I mean, but the difference is it's like you can do your standard, your standard old stuffy museum show and, and you'll have half the attendance and if you were to reach out and get these, you know, just an eclectic mix of really great artists that are outside of the institution who speak to people. They don't just speak to them. Yeah. I guess that's the, that's the irony of it is, is it's like it only takes a few artists to come out and go, okay, I'm going to fuck the art world. I'm going to make artwork that appeals to everybody. Yeah. And financially, that's a smarter move as well because there's much more people in the real world than there are in the art world. Even if, even if there are collectors who will spend hundreds of millions, you can easily supplement that with the real world if you can appeal mm. to them. Yeah, race horses and Well, kittens. just just like, <laughs> I mean, just look at how successful um, um, a TV show that resonates with people would be compared to um, something else. And I mean, that's art as well, isn't mm. it? I guess artists can, can, can take their time to, I guess artists don't have to make art for galleries. They can make art for people. But we have to get people f- away from that sense of alienation and and i don't know if so like a lot of my aunts and it is aunts not uncles they're not interested a lot of my aunts have done out their houses um and you know they chose the fabrics that they've reupholstered the furniture with and the curtains and the you know farrow and ball paint on the walls and all of that kind of thing and the art and it looks amazing. And my mum, too, has a really good eye for this kind of thing. And and quietly, carefully, people do go about these kind of things. Mm. But there's this, there is this very sort of strange thing. You know, if you go to someone's house and you say, oh, I like that. You know, they'll, oh, it's just a friend of mine. Um, yeah, oh, I like rabbits. I don't know. There's this, sort of, <laughs> there's this real timidity about, maybe it's because I'm in the art world. <laughs> but there's this real sense of sort of apologising for your taste or what you've fell in love with or whatever you liked. And I think that's fucked up. But... I mean, I, if someone can go out of their way to, to hang artwork in their house, then power to them, I don't think. Yes. Anyone can look down look down at them for that. No, no. And I think we need more people feeling like, if I like it, then it's good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, let's talk about your, your art practice, the way you run your studio when it comes to creating work. Um, so I, I guess there's probably going to be something a lot of people identify with. It's usually very panicky last minute before a show. <laughs> yeah, so I mentioned earlier 
um, I find it much easier to recognise something that looks good and works than just come up with it out of the blue. So some, there, there are a couple of, I'll, I'll give you my tricks. I've got a big bag of cut out images, uh, all different kinds of things, um, like Greek and Roman columns or insects or other paintings or um, shells or whatever it is. And I mash them all up. And then I sort of half close my eyes <laughs> and sort of see if anything pops out and looks good. And I'll come up with something sort of gradually by fitting things together and thinking what shapes will work. And then when I get it, I'll draw that out and it will change a bit. Um, and then once I've got a sketch, it will become a painting. Um, but there's another thing I do, which I think works really well, is um, I'll choose two very different but um, really good visual books either. So right now on my desk I've got a book of photographs of butterflies and I've got a book called Album Cover Album which is all of my dad's and Storm Thorgerson who did the Pink Floyd covers, all their favourite album covers. Um, so what I'll do is sort of flick through them simultaneously and see if a couple of things work together and one of the really good things about flicking very quickly through an image book is you'll see something that you didn't really see. And what you'll have seen in your head is much more interesting than what was really there. Mm. So you can use that without worrying about yeah. it. <laughs> That's one of the benefits of being dyslexic. Is you, it's pretty much you, half the stuff you recognise doesn't actually exist. <laughs> no copyright. <laughs> yeah, there's no copyright. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, so copy you what you see, but just completely don't understand what you're seeing anyway. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get that with, like, you must, obviously, I guess you get it with words. And Definitely phrasing. with words. Do I'm not that bad, but mm. I do I do often completely... Same as you, you completely misinterpret what something is. Mm. And what you misinterpret is way better than what it actually was. Yes. And you didn't yes. have to do any work at all. It just came to you for free as a mistake. Yes. It's the best thing. And that's why it's really important, kids, to look <laughs> at lots of really good stuff. Like, fill your eyes with, like... Um, you know, lots of people do that, what's it called, like, wiki surfing or whatever, mm -hmm. where you just go page to page to page. If you do that with images, with artists and books, then when you make those mistakes, they'll get more and more interesting. Yeah, yeah, true. Because you'll have more weird, interesting things to draw from. Yeah. So, you, yeah, you've got to feed that thing that pops up in your head saying, oh, my God, what's that amazing thing? Um, yeah, yeah. Like just giving it more data. So the yeah. more you look at, the more data you have to just regurgitate into something strange. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, so that's how I come up with most of what I do. Um, I guess it all comes from um, biological stuff that are really yeah. interested. I can see that that's like what you've got already on, open on the book. That yeah. I love how things like bodies and anatomy and things work um, and how they sort of fit together and pulsate and wriggle and turn and that kind of thing. So coming up with new things that might live and move around, I find really interesting. 
Mm. Um, so with the collages, I'll try and come up with something that looks and feels credibly alive, but not recognisably something that you'd know. Um, and then I paint it. Um, yeah, I found rather inconveniently it's so much easier working on art when nobody else is at work. But being in Japan, that's really late or really early. Yeah. Um, so that I find kind of difficult here. Um, I don't know. When do you find it easier to work? I think if I, if I, if I find myself working really late, then I'm in trouble. Oh, really? You know, because it's like... What's um, really late? Like, you know, past 2 a.m. Right. kind of deal. Because then you know that you've kind of gotten into a bad rhythm. Yeah. And it's not worth it. No. And you, your sleeping cycle's crash. fucked and... and I try and, um, I just try and keep like proper work hours, try to get in, um, at nine and just work till nine mm. and, um, and hopefully somewhere along the way I can, cause it's hard also run a business. So it's hard to try and balance that yeah. creativity and, and, you know, having to put out fires is, it's really difficult. Um, how do you get the space? The headspace? Mm. Um, I guess they're different physical spaces. Yeah, no, um, I have two studios. Um, one's more an office studio and one's a play studio. But it does take, it can take a week to get into a creative headspace. Right. You know, it usually helps if you smoke a lot of weed and, and relax and listen to music. But mm. it's so funny, it takes like, it takes one phone call with a disaster to yeah. get you right back into business headspace. And then it can take a whole week of you having to um, hang out and, you know, and like smoke weed and, and, <laughs> and like, and just do nothing so that you can start thinking in this lateral sense so you can think symbolically. It's very difficult. I, I heard something that slightly terrified me yesterday, which, and I, I, I imagine, I think it's definitely the same with those guys. I, I was working mm. on something earlier this year. Someone called me up telling me a deadline was in two days rather than a month and two days. And that just shot me to shit. Um, but apparently there's something that happens if someone's rude to you, um, it completely, sort of, oh, that was me, sorry. um, it completely puts the kibosh on your sort of, uh, uh, competence. So they did this test where they had doctors in a simulated, um, surgical procedure and in the first scenario, they just let the doctors talk to each other, the surgeons speak to each other and get on with the procedure and can I have the knife or whatever they say to each other. And in the second one, they had someone being rude to them. So they had someone like on a microphone saying, you're crap at that cutting thing, you're shit, you look really tired, you should have a rest. Oh, you can't believe you did that, you idiot. Um, and their... Um, their sort of accuracy and ability uh, dropped off. it dropped off I think something like uh, it took them 50% longer and if it was a real patient they would have died <laughs> so these things do <laughs> have a big effect so that made me like oh god how can you avoid rudeness which obviously you can't can. unfortunately you can hear quite well oh, in, yeah in Japan not as long in as England you, <laughs> as long as you don't read between the lines in Japan yes. you'll, you'll never read <laughs> and I don't <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah so these things have a massive effect so mm. There has to be a way of um, getting out of it. I don't know what that would be, some way of disconnecting from those feelings and those ideas. I did hear one thing, this will be the last thing I say on it, mm -hmm. um, but I heard these two writers talk at a conference and what they do is really interesting. 
Um, and but this was more in the context of um, writer's block. And what they said was they have two rooms as well. One of them is their first draft room, and the second is their editing room. And the, the reason they do that is because if you're not very careful, your editing mind, your criticism mind, your mind that tells you this doesn't work or look right, will start interfering with the part of your mind that needs to play any criticism. And I think, yeah, I mean, that that's, has a lot of... That's interesting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, so you've got to give yourself that space and freedom. And this ties in with our education as well. It all ties together, but you have to have a part of your life where you're just creating and you do not let that part of your brain that tells you that something doesn't work or you need to adjust this or that get in at all mm. until you've until it's time until to edit ready. or something yes yeah um and and uh, yeah and i guess if there were only some way of controlling what other people say to you <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can't you can't control when that happens not caring is the first some people are very lucky that they can be oblivious or not care yeah wouldn't that be amazing yeah. how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> but okay. but but you know then i think uh, i i did have a tutor that said that to me that said i had very thin skin um one time and that must have been that must have really gotten under your skin <laughs> No, I was like, at, at the time, I remember thinking, oh, God, she's absolutely right. What can I do about it? Um, and now I sort of think, well, maybe that means that my life is going to be that, there are going to be that fewer cunts in my life for being <laughs> yeah, more true. sensitive to them. <laughs> um, and, you know, for all of us, you know, arty, creative people, maybe we should let that sensitivity improve on our situation rather than feeling bad about it. Um, that's a, that's pretty good. I was going to ask you for a final words, but that's actually a, that's a pretty good statement. Yeah, to yeah. Just... Embrace your thin skin. Mm. <laughs> Make physical boundaries yeah. between you and horrible people. <laughs> well, just understand that the creative process is really, really complicated. We don't understand it. Mm. So you don't know what's going to get in the way of you being able to think creatively. Or... You don't, but I definitely think you shouldn't. Um, disregard the importance of being porous as well. Sensitivity mm. is just emotional porousness, and I think that's really important mm. for me. Nice. Mm. All right, let's wrap up because we have just about an hour and a half, which is please pretty... buy my work. <laughs> <laughs> this is the buy my work. I'm <laughs> <laughs> listening. So go to Instagram at f r e. Y-J-A. Checks out her work, and um, if you're in Tokyo, uh, look her up to see if she has a show on. You're going to be here for a while, aren't you, in Tokyo? For the foreseeable. For the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, I'll see you soon. Bye.